Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. From America's farm to fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start Raising Kale. I thought I was moving up in my career, going to a higher-end restaurant, and getting paid more and serving more elite clientele. And I realized that I did not find enjoyment in that. My friends and family came and they didn't understand any of the meal. They were lost. I remember getting in a huge argument with my dad because he didn't understand why we would tourne a carrot. Thank you for returning for another episode of Raising Kale. Increasing your knowledge about food is an act of kale raising. And for that, I thank you. What we eat affects our health, the planet, and the economy. But few people think about these factors when they eat. Our next guest is no different. He started his culinary career like most of us approach our food. He didn't see it as a radical act. He enjoyed it, and it made him feel good. What would happen if we knew the impacts of the food we eat on our planet, on our health? Would you make a different choice if you knew? In this episode, I invite you to learn from a man who woke up along his culinary journey, That awakening caused a critical shift in the way he works with food, and he's making a living at it to boot. Ken Miska's title is Chef Farmer. He's both a farmer and a chef who runs a thriving hospitality company in a community that's a little bit urban and a little bit rural in the heart of Illinois. The food that he grows on his farm is served at his restaurants. I've invited him here today with one primary goal, to find out what a chef farmer is. Welcome to Raising Kale, Ken. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about your amazing title, I was wondering if you could describe where you're from in Downs, Illinois. I don't think many people understand how vastly different most of Illinois is from cities like Chicago. Okay, so Downs is in uh, central Illinois. We're really smack dab in the middle of the state, kind of two hours away from Chicago, a little over two hours away from St. Louis, Indianapolis, Rockford, and Madison, Wisconsin. We're kind of about two and a half hours away from all those larger cities. Um, There's 125,000 people that live in an area called Bloomington Normal, and we're 15 minutes outside of Bloomington Normal in my hometown where I grew up and went from kindergarten to high school graduation. 
you left home, you left the middle of Illinois to build your skills and start a career. Talk about your journey, because I understand that it all started with a cake. Yeah, it did. Several cakes and some pies and some pillows in home economics class when I was in like eighth grade. So when I was 17 years old and uh, just starting my junior year in high school, I, I started cooking on a a line and in a bakery at a hotel called, uh, at the time it was called Jimmer's. And I worked at this restaurant called the Radish Rouge. It was interesting. I, I think I fell in love with the, the competitive aspect of the kitchen. I, I was kind of a poor student. I was labeled with a learning disability when I was a kid. I was really late to develop as a child. I didn't pronunciate my words correctly. I couldn't really put together thoughts very well. Um, and I, from the age of three, went to receive like early child care. And so growing up, I received a lot of additional attention and a lot of encouragement uh, to study and to go to after-school programs and things like that. And I, I actually spent my entire like middle school and high school uh, time trying to leave that aside and get away from it and act like I didn't have any issues. And I was really trying to grow, outgrow that. My grades were pretty poor. I didn't do very well in school. And I applied to only one culinary school. I applied, found out about the CIA in New York, and the Culinary Institute of America was the best in the world. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to be the best in the world at something, that's where I need to go. And so I applied. I was denied. Ken didn't give up there. He wrote the Institute and asked for another shot. He was given an in-person interview and talked his way into the culinary school program of his dreams. He started three weeks after graduating high school. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, Ken, because you had difficulty in a traditional learning environment, but once you connected with cooking, it was on, you were on fire, it was a space where you could succeed, and we see a lot of this actually in cooking and in kitchens, right? Yeah, I think the people that strive, like, they have fast-acting, like, uh, mentalities or, or, or brains, like that, almost like that ADD, like ADHD type of mindset, like the kitchen just stimulates it so well because you have to be bouncing around. You got to juggle 10 different things at a time. You have to be hyperactive to a certain extent. And so in the kitchen, my faults in the classroom were actually positives and advantages in the kitchen. And when I figured this out, I figured out that I could finally, for the first time, be in a sport that I could win. I felt like the kitchen arena was something that I could do very, very well in. And it was, I just, I completely put my heart and soul into just figuring out how to become the best chef possible. Ken thrived in culinary school, got good grades. He learned butchering and skills in cooking meat through an externship in Colorado. He finished his culinary degree. At this point in his journey, Ken's life changed, causing him to take stock of his priorities. I had been diagnosed with uh, hereditary kidney disease, so I had extremely high blood pressure. And my kidneys are like three times the size of normal kidneys. And most likely I will have to have kidney transplants and dialysis down the road. And it's a hereditary disease that I can really do nothing about. And then I had, uh, I was in a car accident, um, a way to go snowmobiling. And then I had also suffered a concussion from playing basketball. And when I was working at this bar, I was breaking down a DJ station. And as I was going down the stairs with a big speaker, the stairs broke oh. and the speaker fell on my face and completely smashed the right side of my face. So I oh. had um, I had like those 18 titanium plates and I ended up being in the hospital for a little over a month and having to do reconstructive surgery. So I was held back a little bit that second year. And 
I think I really was like in a position to realize I, I could have, in any of those instances, you know, lost my life. And I have, I have to really think about what I want to do and how I want to do it. And I need to be smarter. And at the same time, I was getting ready to graduate and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my career. And so I convinced my friends, I was like, you know what, we should go to Vegas. They're opening up restaurants like once a week. So me and five guys moved to Vegas. And when we went from the CIA to uh, Las Vegas, I came home for the summer. That summer, I did go to the farmer's market and I met a farmer named Dave Barron, who was a retired farmer in Ellsworth, which is even further in the country. And he brought me to his farm, he invited me, and that was where I dug my first carrots, my first potatoes, found my first mushrooms, harvested my first peaches, and I thought that this region only grew corn and soybeans Mm -hmm. and hay. And I was blown away by the, the diversity on Dave's farm. And so that really stuck with me, and then I went to Las Vegas, the first chef I worked for was Thomas Keller. I worked at the Bouchon in the Venetian. I worked as a prep cook and in his bakery for a year. I then went to Caesar's Palace and worked for a new restaurant called Bradley Ogden's. At the time, it was James Beard Best New Restaurant. It was there where I really fell in love with the chef-farmer connection. We were buying from farmers in California. They were shipping to Vegas three, four days a week, and we were literally rewriting the menu before every service. So the cooks had complete freedom to adjust the dishes based on seasonality and what the farmers sent us. And was that the first time you had been cooking seasonally? In that extent, yes. And so while I was there, I was looking at how many microgreens we were buying from this farm in Ohio. And I was like, I can do this. I was like, I know how to sprout seeds. So I literally, in my bedroom, set up two tables and some grow lights and started germinating and sprouting all these microgreens. And then I brought those to the restaurant and showed up with them. And in the beginning, what it gave me was like competitive advantage with the other cooks. Like who else is showing up growing their own mise en place and their own ingredients for their salads that they're making? And then as time went on and as I got better, I was even able to charge for them. And I was nervous that there was a conflict of interest, that I was working in this kitchen putting these greens on the plate, being encouraged to use more of them because they looked beautiful and they tasted great, but then also charging them. And that was when the first time I had this like economic connection of the dots saying, wow, if I actually grew the food that I wrote onto my menus, that would be a huge advantage. Your first taste of being a businessman. Yes. Next, Ken was hired to open a three Michelin star restaurant in Caesar's Palace, one of the most expensive restaurants in the country at the time. It was here where I went from a seasonally sensitive menu to a very, very strict, you know, one bowl of soup on the menu year round, $68, a bowl of black truffle and artichoke soup. Ouch. And it, it just, I, I thought I was moving up in my career, going to a higher end restaurant and getting paid more and serving more elite clientele. And I realized that I did not find enjoyment in that. When my fam- friends and family came and they even got my employee discount, it was still almost $1,000 for three people to eat there. And they didn't understand any of the meal. No, and they coming from it. Illinois, that type of dining is very foreign. They were lost. I remember getting in a huge argument with my dad because he didn't understand why we would tourne a carrot. 
And now looking back at it, I don't know why I would ever tourne a carrot. And can you explain what tourne a carrot is for our listeners? So, yeah, so you take like a, a, a bird's beak paring knife, and what you do is you take a root vegetable like potato or carrot or rutabaga or turnip, and you're going to cut it into a uh, brick-like pave, and then you're going to shape it vertically like a football. And you're going to make sure that it has seven even sides. <laughs> Now, what it does... Very fancy. It is. It it, it increases the surface area, but also gets rid of the hard edges. So when you glaze it with, like, Bur Blanc or Hollandaise or something, and you put it in your mouth, it's a very sensual experience because there's no hard edges. And there's a lot of surface area to hold a lot of that sauce and that flavor. But it's a complete waste of time (laughs) in a lot of ways because you have so much trim. And to justify it, we would, like make mashed potatoes with the with the trim, but you can only justify it so much. Do, do you um, remember your dad's time. exact words about that? I can just remember how intense the argument was because I was defending the time and the attention to detail and, and the idea behind it. And he's just like, listen, it's just food. Just eat it. And he has that sensibility deal. of, Let, let's just have a carrot. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So at the same time, received a book called Omnivore's Dilemma. And I read the book, and it exposed the industrialized food system and what had happened. And it created this idea of, well, we have a serious dilemma as homo sapiens. And I finished that book and was I connected the dots. And it was like epiphany. I got to connect the dots all the way, go back home, and raise all the food. I knew it at that time. And how long I, did it take from your epiphany to the time you moved back home? So the epiphany was in 2006. So I still had two and a half years left of school, as well as I had to work throughout that time. And so the whole time I was thinking about the epiphany, I was really just telling people about it and like brainstorming it. And then throughout college, my my second degree, any class project or any paper that I could kind of manipulate to include something about epiphany farms, I did. And you were getting a degree in hospitality. Yeah, hotel restaurant management. And at the time, my friend Marcel, who I went to culinary school with, was on Top Chef season two. And he did quite well. He got second place. And then he had to agree to do food and wine festivals around the country and selected me as his sous chef. They did a casting call. And after we did the casting call, we cooked them lunch. They came into the kitchen. They're like, that lunch was phenomenal. Would one of you want to be on the show? And I looked at my friend Hong and I was like, dude, you got it. I knew that day was going to win. <laughs> he went on the show, won $100,000, named me his manager. And then I spent the next year doing food and wine festivals around the country as well. And then I took a job with Hong, and we moved to Manhattan to take over a restaurant. So then I graduated in December, January of 2009. I moved home, um, had $20,000. I bought a $4,000 greenhouse, 100 chickens, 8 pigs, rented 10 acres, rented a tiller, and just started failing in a lot of ways. Uh, <laughs> growing that first year. I remember visiting your farm in those early years, and I remember you had a business partner from Sacramento, and he planted citrus trees. How did that work out in Illinois? Oh, man, we've planted citrus trees multiple times, and (laughs) we do not grow citrus anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I was looking at pictures actually yesterday because I'm I'm preparing a presentation. I was trying. I was like, I want to look through my first couple pictures. So I found the first picture of me in the garden tilling, and I'm looking at it, and I am basically doing everything you can imagine wrong, <laughs> like everything. I had no clue 
what I was doing. So Mike Mustard moved from Sacramento. I'd met him in Vegas. He's my first follower. And um, we planted, went to a hardware store, got tools, got seeds, started planting things in our basement, didn't have enough light. Two weeks go by, everything gets laggy, everything dampens off, and everything oh. dies. Oh. And I'm like, we just spent like $200, and everything is dead. And our greenhouse is still not arrived because it was back ordered. I, I looked at Mustard. I was like, you know what, man? I was like, I know what we got to do. And I had forgotten his name, but I remembered where his farm was. Uh-huh. And we drove out into the country, and we went to Dave Barron's house. I knocked on the door, and he answered in his boxers. And completely, I hadn't seen him in five and a half years. And he invited me into his home, and we hung out, had a cup of coffee. And we left a couple hours later with, like, ten seed catalogs and a catalog on irrigation. And what we did for two years is we went to Dave's farm almost every day. And he would just drive his golf cart in the field and say, you're going to do this with this tool. And we would do it. And then we would weed. And then we would harvest. And then we sold at the farmer's market next to him. And he mentored us for two seasons. We would we would finish farming at his farm a full day. We'd come to our farm. We had shop spotlights. We'd spotlight our garden. And then we'd garden until 3 or 4 in the morning, get up at 9 and do it again. And we just... That was it for that first season. And how was the difference for you from going from gourmet kitchens to that type of hard labor? It was different. It was definitely different. Um, but I was I was pretty charged at this time. I was I was very naive and very inexperienced on the farm side. But I was super charged when it came to my ability to accept failure and learn from it and move forward. You see, something that a chef learns that's so important is that if you mess up, it's actually a good thing. You learn, and you won't mess up next time. And if you do mess up, it's quick to fix. If you overcook the pasta, you can get another pot of pasta. You can get another pot of water boiling, make pasta. 20 minutes, you're going to have perfect al dente pasta because you learn from your experience. Well, with farming, you make a mistake in the spring, and you better take note because you're not going to have a chance to fix that mistake for 12 months. And so in most occupations, I don't think that the feedback loop is as fast as it is in a high-intensity kitchen. And so learning that, I was just really, like, able to kind of move forward with all the punches. It was scary. We didn't really – we ran through money really fast. I, you know, Mustard moved here in March. I actually flew to Vegas and drove him here. Uh, then I went to – I had met a girl my last semester in college, and the mom was from Korea, and she had moved back to Korea to work at Samsung. And I literally took a one-month trip to Korea and asked her to marry me and spent a month convincing her family to let her move back to America. Uh, she moved back in July. And then in September, I went back to Vegas and convinced a guy by the name of Stu Hummel, who was the best cook I'd ever cooked with, um, I convinced him to join and come. And so – by fall, I had my three partners, and I gave them each 25% of the business. Our thing was is that everything we served, we gardened or we farmed. So everything came from the farm. It was either chicken or pork um, and then eggs and then all the vegetables we were raising. And so after a two-hour meal, they would get up um, pretty blown away from the amount of food and the style of the meal. They'd walk into the kitchen to say congratulations, and we would be standing in a kitchen that was cleaner than when we got there, drinking their wine, hanging out, and they would just be blown away. They are just like, what? Like, how is it already clean? And that was our secret uh, to booking more of these because they would just book another one right then. Love it, love it. And you had, at the time, sort of a three-phase 
business plan. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it was just a three-year plan. Um, first year was uh, partners, uh, the corporate structure, um, me overseeing everything, my wife and I'm doing the administration, Muster doing the gardens, and Stu doing um, the kitchen side of things. Year one was about going to farmer's markets, learning how to garden, visiting other farms, all, all that kind of stuff. By the end of year one, we started doing the dinner parties. And then year two was I was really focused on production models. I didn't really know if I had a 50-seat restaurant, how many potatoes I would need. And I also didn't know if I bought 100 pounds of potato seed or potato roots to plant a seed, um, how much would that equal? And so that whole season, I was basically trying to wrap my head around the calculations of how much land and how many beds or how many seeds do I actually have to buy. And Ken, at the time, were there any other models like this where there was a farm and a restaurant combo business that you could draw from? Stone Barnes was really early on. Dan Barber at Stone Barnes was was really early. And then Alice Waters. Alice Waters um, had, you know, had that connection. But no one was no one was managing the farm. It was all cooperatives and, and, and partnerships. And so at the time, I was pretty convinced that we were the only organization with this, this goal of actually integrating the production and consumption as well as closed-looping the waste stream to be the fertility program of the farm. And I, don't, I didn't have any examples. And in the beginning years, we really were, like, trying to figure out how do we do everything. That right. was weird. Like, that's the reason why we would even plant citrus, because we had no understanding of what we could actually do and what we couldn't do, but we were willing to try. So phase anything. two, you're essentially trying to figure out how many potatoes you need if you're to open a restaurant, and you're completely trailblazing this data uh, without really a, a model to follow. So, the restaurant opening is phase three, right? Yeah, phase three. So it was our fall of the second year um, where we were desperately looking for real estate to open our first restaurant. Long story short, at the same time, I had uh, helped another restaurant. I consulted a little bit at a restaurant called Central Station. Central Station had been there since the late 70s. So a year went by, and we ended up getting a call from Chad saying that, hey, his chef walked out, and he's got a local dinner, local foods dinner this weekend. And he needed help with uh, a, a temporary chef. He's like, can you guys just be the chef of the event just so we save face and it's not a disaster? And me and Stu agreed. Uh, Nanam agreed. We, we rolled in there. We prepped for three days. We experienced a, a broken culture. Um, we experienced a, a place that was just bleeding from the inside and out. It was, you know, no passion, no excitement, lots of negativity, um, lots of abuse. Mm. And we did this dinner. It was a tasting for, I think, 140 people showed up once they found out we were there. And the next week, we were sitting around and we were thinking, we're like, well, you know, if, if we were to just go take over this restaurant and be the managers of it, maybe we could get complete control if we prove that we can run it the right direction. And if he stops losing money, maybe we can have an opportunity to buy it <laughs> instead of having to borrow money from a bank and build a restaurant that's an unknown. And we agreed that that was a better route for us. And I think it was on Wednesday, me and Stu sharpened our knives and rolled in the back door without a contract and without an agreement. And we just planted our station in the middle of that kitchen and started leading them. And it took us nine months. We got through the first nine months. It was in March. By 
the end of the year, the agreement was if we finished in the green and he stopped losing money, he would value, value his business and his building and give us an opportunity to buy it. It took us two and a half more years to be able to even make a payment on that purchase of that business. Once we started paying it down and we officially had taken on true ownership uh, and we had doubled sales at this time, we started to have a little bit more, more much more freedom and confidence that this was going to work. And so then at that time, we um, reconcept the second floor and turned that into a restaurant called Anju. We remodeled the first floor, turned that into a restaurant called Epiphany Farms, remodeled the banquet facility, opened uh, what we called the uh, completion of the epiphanization of this building. <laughs> uh, and uh, this was uh, eight and a half years ago was when we had taken that space over. And today you have five restaurants? About to be five restaurants, with, uh, but if you include the farm, which we do for food service, we have six locations. Very critical question. What does your dad think about your food? Now? Yep. Oh, he loves it. He loves it. <laughs> he loves it. He, uh, yeah, I mean, from what it was, and you know what, I'm glad he said that, because I think that, you know, at the time, if he would have maybe celebrated it and thought that I was doing the right thing, maybe I would have felt comfortable just, you know, just staying there and, and, and cooking that type of cuisine. And so yeah. nowadays, the food that we do is it, it, it's the exact opposite of pretension. Um, it's, it's really just, you know, classic attention to detail, home cooking, you know, made from scratch. Before we find out what a chef farmer is, I'm jumping in with a quick update. I first interviewed Ken right before the pandemic. Because restaurant closures have so negatively affected the industry during this crisis, I reached back out to get an update from him. Let's hear how he's doing. So Ken, thanks for coming back to talk to me about what it has been like for you through this pandemic as a restaurant. And I know that industry has been particularly hit. Talk about what the pandemic has meant for your business. Oh, it's, it's been, I mean, I, I keep on trying to see the silver lining and everything and, you know, stay as positive as possible and just keep moving things in the right direction. But it's been extremely disruptive. Um, you know, when no one really saw it coming, no one thought that it was going to last as long. And being here in Illinois, it's been particularly difficult because we've been on, uh, you know, a, a diamond ban now since the beginning or middle of November, um, which was actually just lifted yesterday. So, uh, we had our first two tables walk into a, our flagship restaurant, which was really exciting. But, I, you know, I think we learned a lot. It was almost like everything that was on our plans to kind of roll out over a course of the next three years was like all like immediately rolled out in a matter of months. So, you know, <laughs> Talk online about order, that. yeah, it's crazy. Like online ordering automatically became on the forefront, integration, new POS system. You know, I, I, I didn't think we'd be doing actual like, running our own, managing our own delivery service, you know, until next year. And here we are, you know, delivery drivers, integrated pickup, contactless payment, things like that. But it, I think it's good. And I, I think overall, luckily, it's going to play in our favor when it comes to the farm and the farm visits. So what Illinois saw, and I'm sure it was similar in other states, was, you know, a record number of farm visits, a huge, you know, they got this new, like, uh, outdoor economy. It's like a big part of the economy that we track now. And that's because people are limited in terms of what they can do indoors. So now folks are looking for that outdoor entertainment. I think there's that. And then there's also um, a little bit of what happened in 2008, where a lot of people are starting to realize like, oh, wow, the, the systems are really fragile and I need to focus on my health. And, you know, I need to make sure that, you know, we're, 
we're putting the right things into our bodies. And so I, I see a lot of what I saw when I founded Epiphany Farms back in 2008, 2009. I, I kind of see that happening again, um, which is great. Yeah. And do you think that has something to do with the fact that, I mean, obviously COVID is a health scare. Um and we want to keep ourselves healthy so we don't get the virus. But is there also something to the fact that, you know, folks couldn't find groceries, but they could look to their local food economy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when all of a sudden grocery store shelves were empty, if you had a CSA, you're good. You know, the, you're going to get your weekly share. Talk but, about what a CSA is and what you guys do to offer that. It's got a unique name. I mean, it's uh, community supported agriculture, but it's, it's also like uh, basically people subscribe to your farm uh, during the off season. They sign up for either a whole season or uh, every week or every other week. There's a lot of different ways of doing it nowadays at different farms, but they're basically subscribing and investing in your farm and investing in the season. And then you give them um, a priority and they get the premier harvest. Unfortunately, two of the four restaurants uh, we're closed. And so both the bakery and pickle and the old bank are just sitting there. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It, it's okay. I mean, right now we're, um, I'm looking to potentially uh, sell or release one of them, but the other one's just going to kind of sit there until we can have more volume. Mm-hmm. And then Harmony Grill, which is our fifth concept, uh, is is getting really close. We're, we're kind of finally at the final inspections and hopefully in the next four or five weeks, we'll have that back up and running. Um, so that'll be a really exciting time for us. And then moving away for the farm for the first 11 growing seasons, I lived at the farm. And now that I've moved off of the farm, that house is being converted to a bed and breakfast um, for the wedding guest, as well as travelers that come to central Illinois. And then behind the barn, we have uh, an RV park that we installed. <laughs> so nice. there'll be uh, five slots for mobile homes to come in and stay for the week. And join in in the fun farm activities and have breakfast with us and things like that. So a lot of movements. And that's you know, amazing. You have not missed a beat. No, we don't stop. There's no way. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that Ken's business has remained resilient through this crisis. His creativity and grit are inspiring. Now, the moment you've been waiting for, Ken is about to tell us what a chef farmer is. Ken, I want to bring this um, full circle okay. and we have yet to explain to our listeners what is, and I feel it's a title you have absolutely earned, what is a chef farmer? It's a hybrid position of, um, you know, someone that thinks about cuisine and feeding people and, and creativity, but then takes complete responsibility of the production of that cuisine. And so it's, it's understanding it from the soil and the seed all the way to uh, the, the, the guest um, the guest plate. Wonderful. Well, I love your story, and I'm super grateful that you came on our show to share it. Uh, it's, it's been it's fun finishing up the first decade, and then now rolling into the second one. There's a lot of momentum, and there's a you know there's a lot of energy, and uh, it, it feels really really good. Yeah, congratulations, Ken. It's um it's been quite a journey, and uh, so proud to see all of your accomplishments. I hope you keep raising kale there in Illinois. Oh, we will. We will for sure. Thanks for your support. I really, really appreciate it. Now you know what a chef farmer is. Don't you feel smarter? I hope you enjoyed Ken's adventures and that they sparked a new appreciation for food for you too. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends. 
Join me for our next episode, where my guest, Crystal Oriada, shares the harrowing personal stories that drove her to commit her life to social justice. I will warn you, her story includes some traumatic events that may be triggering. These events fueled her to want to change the world. What does food have to do with social change and issues like race and equity? Crystal explains. Listen and learn in our next episode of Raising Kale.